please note that this is part two of a two-part episode. We advise you to listen to Confessions Part 1 before listening to this episode. In 1980, when 11-year-old Yu Wan went missing from his home one day, the weeks of searching soon turned into months, and finally, his mother's ex-boyfriend was charged with his disappearance and was tried before the court. He was at first found guilty, but when Yuan's parents appealed the sentencing, pushing for him to be convicted of murder, he was in turn unbelievably found not guilty of all charges and released from custody. Fast forward to 13 years later, Yuan's father Björn had moved a thousand kilometers south of his native Sundsvall in the north of Sweden to Denmark's capital, Copenhagen. One night, whilst in a jazz club together with his girlfriend, he striked up a conversation with five older Swedish men. One of these men claimed without any knowledge of who Björn was, that he worked as a doctor in a mental institution in Sweden, and that one of the patients had just confessed to the murder of Johan. Was there any truth to this? And who was the patient who had confessed to the murder? This is Nordic True Crime. Björn did exactly what he said he would do, and filed a complaint about the doctor to the authorities the very next morning. However, he didn't think that there was any truth to the confession, as he had heard nothing from the police about it, and there had been others who, through the years, had claimed that they had killed Johan, which of course had turned out not to be true. So Björn filed a complaint and thought no more of it. Little did he know that at the mental institution back in Sweden, a horrible story was about to unfold.
The person who had came forward and confessed was a 43-year-old man called Thomas Kvik. He grew up together with his parents and his six siblings in Dalarna, a region in the central part of Sweden. At that time, he was called Sture Bergvall, a name he would later change to Thomas Kvik in 1992 and then changed back to Sture Bergvall in 2002. For simplicity, we will refer to him as Kvik throughout this episode. According to Kvik, his upbringing was anything but normal, and he claimed that he was sexually abused by his father, and his mother was a very cold woman. One incident in particular would traumatize him forever. He had witnessed his baby brother Simon being born at home, but seconds after the birth, his parents killed the small baby and buried him in the garden, an incident that anyone would struggle to forget. Kvik began sniffing various solvents at a very young age, and it was around this time that it became clear that he was engaging in disturbing sexual behavior when he was expelled from school for repeatedly sexually harassing his male classmates. In 1969, when he was 19 years old, he attacked a nine-year-old boy in town, dragging the defenseless child into a back alley and raping him. He also tried to do the same with two other boys on two separate occasions, but they had managed to escape. He was arrested in connection with these three different attacks, but after being questioned by the police, he had asked to go home to sleep, which he was allowed to do. But instead of going home, he went out and got drunk and decided to visit the local hospital where he worked. He convinced his colleague to let him in because he claimed that he needed someone to talk to. But suddenly there was an emergency which she had to attend to and she therefore left Quick alone. When his colleague left, Quick decided to put on a white doctor's coat and sneak into a room where he knew that four boys were sleeping and it was there that he brutally, sexually assaulted them. After having forced himself on one of the boys, he gripped him in a chokehold. The boy passed out and when he suddenly started to bleed heavily from the nose, Quick let go of his grip. Quick was arrested for the attacks 
but the doctors who had performed the psychological evaluations of Quick didn't agree as to whether or not he had actually intended to murder the boy or not. Eventually, the court decided to side with the conclusion of the doctor who didn't believe that the intentions of Quick were that of murder and sentenced him to psychiatric treatment instead of prison. He was treated from 1970 until 1977 for suffering from an antisocial personality disorder. But in 1974, when he was 23 years old, he decided one night to go to the local gay bar where he would meet another man. They had a good time at the bar, and they ended up leaving together, where Quick followed the man home. But once there, seemingly unprovoked, he attacked the man and stabbed him with a knife, approximately 10 to 12 times. He then calmly left the apartment, leaving the man to die on the floor. Luckily, the man managed to phone an ambulance and survived the attack. But since Kvik was still receiving mental treatment, he was never charged for the attempted murder. In fact, the prosecutor kept referring to this fact throughout the 1970s, whilst Quick continued to commit other crimes, such as fraud and minor drug offences. But that all stopped in 1990, when Quick and a 16-year-old accomplice held a family hostage whilst they forced the father of the family to hand over a large sum of money. Quick threatened to kill them all while stabbing his knife into a bed and the walls. In the wake of this incident, a new psychological evaluation was ordered and Quick was diagnosed with split personality disorder and sentenced to treatment in Sather's Mental Hospital in 1991. He was given psychotherapy more or less daily, and it was during one of these sessions that he suddenly confessed to the murder of 11-year-old Yu Wan in 1980. The staff at the mental hospital were unsure if Quick's confession in regards to the murder of Yuan was true, so one of the doctors decided himself to investigate the claim further before going to the police. He put Quick in a car and drove him to Bosvedjan, where Yuan was abducted 
and performed his own so-called walkthrough of where the crime took place. After conducting the walkthrough, and at the same time closely monitoring Quick, the doctor thought there could be some truth to what his patient was claiming, and decided to contact the police. Seppo Pentinen was one of the detectives who came to Sater to question Quick. He talked freely and openly, confessing once again to having murdered Yuan. And a few days later, Quick was once again taken back to Bosvedjan for a walkthrough of the area, but this time in the presence of the police. However, no one from the police had contacted Anna Clara and Björn to inform them of what was going on. Instead, they heard about it from a newspaper reporter who had phoned Anna Clara's home number asking for a comment. They were in complete shock, but the shock soon turned to confusion as they had suspected a completely different person for all these years, the previously charged and later freed ex-partner of Anna Clara. This turned everything on its head. Two weeks later, Seppo Pentinen questioned Anna Clara. The questions revolved around Yuan's school bag, and the whole interview only lasted for about five minutes. After this, the police investigation into Quick's confession continued, but Yuan's parents had absolutely no involvement whatsoever in the case. They had to keep themselves updated through the media. And by then, the disturbing details of Quick's confession had started to leak and were subsequently printed all over the newspapers. A horrible way for Yuan's parents to find out what had happened to their son. Quick had attacked Yuan and sexually assaulted him before killing him. He had then cut up his body and ate parts of his fingers before disposing of the remaining body parts at different locations. In the middle of all of this, Quick then confessed to yet another unsolved murder. A 15-year-old boy, Charles Selmanovitz, who had disappeared after a school dance in 1976 in Piteo. In 1993, the remaining parts of his body were found out on the moors close to where he had disappeared. At the time of the disappearance, Quick didn't have access to a car, but he told the police that he had an accomplice with him and even named the man. But the man could never be questioned in regards to Quick's confession because he had committed suicide shortly after the murder had taken place. 
there was no technical or physical evidence tying any of the men to the crime. But the police took Vic to the area where Charles had been found to perform yet another walkthrough and carried out a reconstruction of what had occurred on that evening back in 1976. The case against Quick was deemed to be very strong and on the 16th of November of 1994, he was convicted of Charles's murder. Once again, Quick confessed to yet another murder and it became clear to the police that they were now dealing with a serial killer. However, this murder seemed to differ from the others when it came to the victim, or in this case, victims. Up until then, Kvik had only murdered younger boys, which was consistent with his criminal profile as he was a pedophile. But this time, he had confessed to the murder of two Dutch tourists, Marinus, who was 39, and Jani Stegehuis, who was 34, on the 13th of July, 1984. Two adults, and one of which was a woman. The couple had put their tent up by the lake Apoyaure, in the northern part of Sweden. During the night, they had been brutally stabbed with a knife around 20 times each, and the man had received a heavy blow to the head, leaving parts of his face crushed. Again, there was no physical evidence tying Quick to these murders, so the detectives asked for some concrete information which they could verify. Quick then said that he had hit the man with a big rock on the head from the outside of the tent. This was of course consistent with the blunt force trauma the man had received to his face. The police took Quick to Apoyaure for a reconstruction of the attack. The whole point of this was of course to let the suspect show them exactly how the crime was committed from start to finish so that the police could compare Quick's version of events with the evidence the police had from the original crime scene. To be certain that he did in fact commit the crime and that there was no significant discrepancies. But by the time they had arrived at the scene of the crime, the police had already set up a tent and placed two dolls inside at the exact same spot where the victims had been found. They had set the scene, so to speak. And even though much of his version of events were inconsistent with the evidence of how things most likely occurred, he managed to get many things right the second time, and this was enough for him to be charged. On the 26th of January, 1996, 
he was convicted of the murder of Marinus and Janni Stegehaus. When asked how he got there, he initially claimed that he had traveled by bicycle both there and back, a round trip of 200 kilometers. But he later changed his mind and said that he had had an accomplice who drove them there. However, the accomplice was never charged. One of the detectives, Jan Olsson, who was present at the reconstruction at Apoyaure, was beginning to have his doubts. There was just too many things that didn't add up, and he was starting to suspect that Kvik was giving them false confessions. And he wasn't the only one having doubts. Both Anna Clara and Björn didn't believe for a second that Kvik had killed their son. There was just too many inconsistencies. And when Kvik confessed to having killed the two Somalian boys who had disappeared from a refugee camp in Norway, his confession could easily be proved to be false, as the boys were very much alive. One was living in Sweden, and the other in Canada. Anna, Clara and Björn decided to look into how the whole investigation into Kvik's confessions was being carried out by the police, and started to do so by sitting in on the trials. Kvik's first confession was the murder of their son, but since he hadn't been able to give any more details about the murder, which would be strong enough to hold up in court, the police had instead put that investigation on hold and moved forward with the other murders he had confessed to. And he kept on confessing. This time, it was the murder of the 24-year-old Israeli boy, Yenon Levi, who was in Sweden to visit his relatives. He had been found murdered on a forest path on the 11th of June, 1988. At the time, the police had suspected a man who knew Yenon to be the killer, but the evidence wasn't strong enough for an arrest. So the case went cold until Kvik confessed to it, and on the 28th of May 1997, he was convicted of the murder. During this investigation, Jan Olsson, who already previously doubted the truthfulness of Kvik's confessions, knew for sure that it was all lies. Because during the reconstruction, he had been getting every detail wrong, plus the fact that there was no technical or physical evidence tying him to the murder of Jenon Levy. Despite this, the prosecutor, Christer van der Kvast, 
had taken the case to trial, changing things to fit the one version of events. His version. Jan then wrote a letter to van der Krust, stating that he was not standing behind this violation of justice, and he resigned from the case. Quick confessed to yet another murder. In 1988, a nine-year-old girl called Therese Johannesen had disappeared from a town called Drammen in Norway. Quick claimed that he had killed her and threw her body into a lake. The Norwegian police drained the whole lake, but didn't find any trace of Therese. They did, however, find burnt bone fragments that were believed to be from a human child in a nearby forest. Quick was charged with her murder on the 2nd of June, 1998. Despite the fact that her body was never found and that were strong suspicions that she had been kidnapped by a family member and taken abroad. The bone fragments, which were found in the nearby forest, in fact turned out to not be bone from either a human or animal. Another confession followed. Quick claimed to have killed a further two Norwegian girls. 17-year-old Trine Jensen and 23-year-old Gry Storvik. Trine vanished on the 21st of August 1981 from the capital city of Oslo and was found dead two months later in a forest about 10 kilometers from Oslo. Gry's dead body was found in a parking lot just south of Oslo on the 25th of June 1985. Quick was convicted of these murders in the year 2000, despite no evidence of any kind existing. In addition to this, semen found inside Gry was actually from another unknown male, not Quick. But even this evidence didn't stop him from being convicted of her murder. In total, Quick confessed to 30 murders that had been committed between 1964 and 1993 in Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland, but only eight of these cases actually went to trial. All of these trials were led by the same prosecutor. Christer van der Kvast, and the same lead detective, Seppo Pentinen. But what about Johan's case? The years dragged on 
but nothing much happened with the investigation. Pentanen had phoned Anna Clara to ask if Johan had a scar on his body after an operation. She said no, but he wouldn't give in. Kvik had mentioned to Seppo that Johan had a scar on his stomach, so he kept asking Anna Clara about it. Was she completely certain that he didn't have a scar? Could she be 100% sure? Anna Clara was, of course, certain about this. Not only was she Johan's mother, but also a nurse. So there was no way she would somehow forget if her son did or didn't have a scar on his stomach. Apart from these phone calls about the scar, neither Anna Clara or Björn were told anything about the ongoing investigation. They tried to get in contact with the prosecutor van der Kvast, but had no luck and were continually kept in the dark. Kvik had talked a lot about the scar on Johan's body, but he kept changing his mind about its position and what it looked like. Anna Clara and Björn knew the truth, but they wanted to keep this to themselves. He did have a scar, but this was the only evidence they had left and they didn't want to give it away. Especially not to the lead detective who they were highly suspicious of due to his actions throughout the whole investigation. They then noticed something alarming. Pentanen would be given information by Kvik, which he would then bring to Johan's parents, and they would, in turn, tell him the true version of events or correct the mistakes which Quick had made. Later, they would then notice that Quick went on to change his story exactly to what they had told the detective. Eventually, Pentanen told Anna Clara and Björn that they would get to meet the prosecutor if they would show exactly where the mark on Johan's body could be found. He handed over a picture of a sketch of a body and asked Anna Clara to mark the spot where the scar could be found. But she told him she was unfortunately unable to do it. The reason being unknown to the detective was because the picture was only showing a body from the front and Yuan's scar was on his buttocks. But after a lot of pressure, Anna Clara caved in and made a little mark with her pen on the back of the figure. As soon as she had done so, Pentanen called up on the quest and told him that he had got it and immediately hung up the phone. The prosecutor did not want to speak with them, despite them being promised that he would. And this was also despite the fact that the prosecutor's role is to speak for and to the victims and their families. By now, Anna Clara and Björn 
were feeling more like perpetrators than the parents of a missing son. During the first seven years of the investigation, the prosecutor had not been in contact with them once. But suddenly, Anna Clara was called to a meeting to meet with Van der Kvast. According to her, he was extremely rude and more or less threatened her to participate in the investigation on his terms in order for him to take the case to trial. He even told her that she was betraying her son if she didn't do what she was told. He made her feel terrible and she could never imagine that she would be treated in this manner. She was the victim's mother, not his killer. In 2001, 21 years after the disappearance of Yuan, the case was once again taken to court. Quick claimed that he was out looking for a boy to assault and came across Yuan by chance. He sexually assaulted him before killing him. He said that he cut the body up and disposed of the body parts in different parts of the country. Anna Clara and Björn had their lawyer present during the trial and it was a somewhat absurd situation because the victim's parents' lawyer was the only one who really ever questioned Kvik's version of events and she poked gaping holes in his story. But as soon as she asked him to demonstrate in more detail how he had carried out phases of his attack, his carer would say that Kvik needed medication and asked for a recess. And this process was repeated throughout the whole trial. In the end, the court believed Kvik's version of events, despite the evidence against these claims, and he was convicted of Yuan's murder. Anna, Clara and Björn were devastated. They were certain that their son's killer was not the deranged man behind bars, so they decided to take it further and appeal the sentence. But in order for their lawyer to be given access to the initial investigation before the original trial, they had to state that they were behind the prosecution. But in their lawyer's closing arguments in court, she stated that they were no longer behind it and they believed that Kvik wasn't guilty of the murder. But this did not seem to have been noted. The court said that since they once had been behind the prosecution, they did not have the right to appeal the sentence, stating that as the plaintiff, you can't appeal a sentence in the favor of the defendant. Their last resort was to take their case to the Chancellor of Justice, Joran Lambech. At their first meeting with Joran, 
He was very supportive and told them, as long as they gave him all the evidence they had, he would look into it. So they left him all the material they had gathered over the years, which was roughly 20,000 pages along with 18 hours of videotapes. But just four days later, Lambert got back to them, claiming that he couldn't find any evidence of a wrongful investigation or conviction, and he believed that everything was carried out in order with the law. He also decided to keep all the evidence, and if they wanted it back, they could get copies for a fee. And that was it. Anna, Clara and Björn could not appeal the case any further. But in 2008, seven years after Quick had been convicted of the murder of Johan, a reporter called Hannes Rådstam made a documentary about Quick after consulting both Anna Clara and Björn. And in this documentary, Quick took back all of his previous confessions, claiming that he never committed any of the murders. Since there was no physical evidence in any of the cases tying Quick to the murders, there was absolutely no way that he could have committed the crimes, and in the documentary, he simply retracted his confessions. But how had he been able to get so many things correct? Because it turns out that he did in fact get a lot of things about the crimes right. In truth, this was achieved by the suggestive questioning carried out by the police and the fact that Quick sometimes had access to libraries where he had been able to read up on the disappearances through media archives and newspapers. This, of course, became a nationwide scandal, which shouldn't have been allowed to happen in a trusted justice system in modern times. But yet, it had happened. Quick's eight murder convictions were eventually overturned, and he was released from prison. He apologized to all of the victims' families for what he had put them through, stating that he had been heavily medicated throughout the years, and also said that he knew an apology wasn't worth that much to the family and friends of their missing and murdered loved ones. It also turned out that much of the things Kvik had recalled from his childhood were also untrue. For instance, the claim that he was sexually abused by his father or the incident with his brother being born and then killed at the family house, they were all just figments of his overactive imagination. The Swedish government appointed a commission 
to investigate how this could have happened. The report was filled with harsh criticism of the investigation and the weak acceptance of the confessions. The report also criticized the fact that the investigation team had been quite small, with almost no insight, which resulted in one-tracked thinking. It also stated that anyone who may have had other opinions or ideas were quickly excluded from the group. In addition to this, the team were also criticized for not going through all of the evidence, such as the evidence presented by Anna Clara and Björn. However, due to the years which had now passed and which were of course wasted on the Thomas Quick confessions, the murder of Johan had been prescribed, a law in place which meant that no one could ever be convicted of his disappearance and eventual murder due to the time which had passed. This law has now been changed, and today a murder is never prescribed. But that unfortunately doesn't apply to older cases which occurred before the change in the law. Anna Clara and Björn's son is still missing, and even after years of investigations and two separate trials, nobody has paid the price for his disappearance. Nobody except for his devastated parents. In 2015, 35 years after the disappearance of her son, Anna Clara told Swedish newspaper Svenska Dagbladet, I lost my only son that morning. I lost my mother's role, and now you can say I lost my grandmother's role too. All my friends have children and grandchildren. It's really difficult. But someone knows what happened that morning in 1980. And that person is still out there. Are you looking for headphones that provide quality sound, are stylish and have up to 9 hours battery life? Then Studio is the brand for you. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and high-tech variations are bulky and not design-oriented. Studio want to bridge that gap. With their modern Scandinavian design, they also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. So head over to studio.com today. That's S-U-D-I-O dot com 
to receive a 15% discount on any purchase, including free worldwide shipping. Using the discount code Nordic True Crime or see the link in the show notes. Remember, that's studio.com. 911, what's your emergency? Every 60 seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. What causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things? He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that examines the most disturbing criminal minds. We shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play.